0: Hello and welcome to another DishCast. I'm broadcasting to you from a very muggy province town where I am attempting to breathe on a daily basis. Um, got my budesonide nebulizer coming soon, so that will help. But it's a beautiful day and it's cleared up. It was absolutely brutal rain earlier, and now it's 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 calming. I am thrilled today to have Eric Erickson as our guest on the DishCast. He is, as you may well know, a radio host and a writer. And he was an old school blogger back in the days when we were all doing that together at Red State, serving as editor-in-chief. And he later became a political contributor for CNN and Fox News, which is kind of a, a remarkable combo in a way. Today, he hosts the Eric Erickson Show on WSB Radio in Atlanta. And he's a substacker too. He's running a popular substack of the same name. He's also in seminary, if that's the right way to call it, to describe it. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Before we go, I just want to let you know our coming guests. We have Dave Weigel coming up on all things politics. We have Gene Twenge on what the hell is happening to the younger generation. And Matt Lewis, who's got a new book out on ruling class
1: elites. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the DishCast. Thank you very much for having me. I I have to be honest, I got the invite. And it's like, is someone pranking me? Is this the real Andrew Sullivan? Uh, Well, there's only one. No,
0: and I'm thrilled to have you. As I was saying just before we started, I've followed a lot of people last, let's say, 10 years. And it's been quite a 10 years. It's been quite a few years in political terms, in terms of partisan terms. And a lot of people have gone completely bonkers. A lot of people I've lost a huge amount of respect for. And although I don't agree with every position you've taken, I, I can see in what you have tried to do a kind of strand of integrity throughout this. And, and especially when you have deal, dealt with some issues and some pressure that I think most of us don't have to deal with. So I just want to start by saying it's a pleasure to have you and an honor to have you. And thank you for not
1: going crazy in the last seven years. <laughs> Thank, thank you. You know, my, my wife sometimes says, uh, how the hell are you the sane person right now? And I do wonder that sometimes myself. How am I the, the sane person in, in the sea of crazy? Well, but I appreciate your it. wife had to deal with a huge amount of stuff as well, which is another
0: completely outrageous aspect of, of what has been happening. Eric, tell me where you were born and grew up and what were, the, what were your first kind of
1: environment to grow up in? The supervillain origin story. I was actually born in in Louisiana, rural Louisiana, outside of north of Baton Rouge, in a place called East Feliciana Parish, Jackson. It's very rural. The entire parish is essentially a state enterprise. Uh, But when I was five, my dad packed us up. He worked for an oil company and they moved us to Dubai. Dubai of the 1980s is not the Dubai of now. We were the only yard in our neighborhood that actually had grass in the backyard. And only because my parents decided to converted from desert. But it was a a wild upbringing in that every few months our visa would lapse and my dad's company would say, pick a country and go to it. We would go for a week. We would come back to the States in the summer. But I've still now, I'm, I just turned 48 a couple of weeks ago. I've been to more countries than States as a result. My family, we were the host family for the fifth fleet of the U.S. Navy. Dubai had the only dry docks in the 1980s in the Middle East. So I would wake up in the morning, there'd be sailors asleep on my floor. Okay, now Uh, let's let's run this back a little bit. What did your father do? So my father was, he was called a production foreman. He was in charge of getting oil out of the Persian Gulf for the royal family in Dubai. And why
0: would American servicemen be on your living room floor? I'm just trying to figure this out.
1: Okay. Yes. So in fact, my oldest sister wound up marrying her Navy recruiter. We, we grew up with the Navy. So Dubai in the 1980s was the only place an American naval vessel could go anywhere in the Middle East and be serviced in a dry dock where they can pump all the water out and fix the whole of the ship. And so the Fifth Fleet, though it was stationed in Bahrain, had to come to Dubai for repairs. And my parents found out about this when I was very young and started organizing block parties for the sailors so all the enlisted would come to my house my mom would wash their uniforms my dad would cook for them if you were an american there were liquor stores so my dad would go buy beer and organize the entire neighborhood into block parties and i would wake up some mornings and there would be sailors asleep on the floor that they missed the last cab back to the boat and my parents would give them a sleeping bag and put them on the floor and that's just the way I grew up. We we traveled the world and we entertained the U.S. Navy. <laughs> just trying to absorb all that. So yeah, so I'm just trying to think what kind of parents
0: you had. I mean, this is uh, these are obviously gregarious, open people. Tell me about
1: them. Like, what did your dad do oh, exactly? I mean, you know, he was he was so, in the oil industry. He was in the oil industry. He was when I was a kid, he would be gone every other seven days. He would work offshore seven days and come home seven days, and was mostly asleep during that time. He was exhausted when he came home. I really didn't have a great relationship with my dad until I was in high school because during the Iran-Iraq war or during the the Iraq war when they were moving into Kuwait, my dad's company sent us all home. If you can recall back then in 1990, the rumor was Saddam Hussein was going to just go down the coast, first take Kuwait and sail down to run down to the United Arab Emirates where we were. So... My dad's company sent us all home. I was there from 1980 to 1990 from 5 to 15, and then we moved back to rural Louisiana, which was a total culture shock. And but my dad still had to work, so he would still go back there for a month and then come home for a month. My mom was my mom is an interesting person. She was kind of a social butterfly when we lived in Dubai, and then they moved to rural Louisiana and over time slowly had less contact with humanity and more with just the personalities on on Fox News. <laughs> and became more of a political family. They were never political when I was little. Mm. They subscribed to, for example, they subscribed to National Review. That was actually the first comic strip I had at, at the time. They had cartoons, and we didn't have newspapers, but they subscribed to Southern Living Magazine, and they loved to cook, and now I love to cook, and we just traveled the world. It was a very surreal experience. I tell my wife stories all the time. Like, for example, when I was 11, my parents decided I was old enough to fly from Dubai to Baton Rouge, Louisiana by myself. And the plane crashed somewhere in Austria. We had to, The plane had mechanical failures and had to glide down a foamed runway. And then I had to spend a night in the red light district in Amsterdam as an 11-year-old because there were no other available hotels in the city. But that was my upbringing. It was kind of this weird, surreal experience. You sound like a terrible globalist. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. It's how I developed my appreciation of the United States, I remember as a kid, we would have to tell people we were Swedish dur- during the height of the Iran-Iraq War, which my dad is Swedish, just because Americans in some parts of the world, you weren't necessarily safe. Hezbollah one time tried to blow up my school while I was in class. So it, it was just, it was a very different way to grow up and then to come back to rural Louisiana from that experience. And I will never forget, I actually had a kid in Miss Priest's 10th grade English class who did not know what the word liberty was. And I mean, just mind-blowing experience to go from one of the best schools in the world to a school where a kid had never heard the word liberty.
0: So your school out in Dubai
1: was an American military or, or American, say what? It was an oil school. Oh, okay. they, all the oil companies kind of pulled their money and I mean, I went to school with kids from Hong Kong and Sweden and Canada. As much as it was American school, there were kids from you named the country. There was probably someone there. Fascinating. It does help, I think.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm some, I, was told, I was told at one point by John Stewart that I don't know this country because I've never lived here. I don't, I've lived here half, most of my life. But nonetheless, I was like, no, sometimes, you know, I think people from outside can actually see America a little bit more clearly than people who've lived here their whole lives. And for me, I've never, I, I'm a bit of a, an immigrant, sort of classic immigrant. I, I love the place. I think it's insane half the time, but I kind of l- grown to love that about it. And I realized that part of what I f- was frustrated about in, in England was it wasn't really that insane. It was all incredibly ordered and all incredibly controlled. And I didn't feel comfortable in that kind of environment. So anyway, you're, you're back now in Louisiana. I've actually been around there near Baton Rouge. It is, it is a quiet place quiet place. So how did you, what was your, what were you interested in 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 school? Were you, were you,
1: were you, were you? you, I, in, in like late middle school while still in Dubai, I kind of, I wasn't an athlete. I got interested in politics and the news as kind of a way to connect to the U.S. And it's hard to describe, but every presidential election season, starting in like kindergarten, Our our school would just, everything would revolve around the American election, and in eighth grade was the 1988 presidential election, and we had to learn how to debate, and we had to keep up with the news, and I got back to the States for 10th grade and was really interested in politics, and the Edwin Edwards-David Duke race happened in Louisiana. My Republican parents had a bumper sticker on the back of their car that said, vote for the crook, it's important. And I just thought, this is insane. I, I've moved from Dubai to a state where a grand whatever of the KKK could be governor. I got to get out of here. So I, I left as quick as I possibly could to move to college in Georgia just to to get away from what I thought was the insanity of Louisiana. And, and it is a very, it's quiet, but it's a quite insane state. It's One reason I know that the 2020 election wasn't stolen was because I'm from Louisiana. I know how to steal an election. <laughs> Yeah,
0: Louisiana is one of those really weird places—the
1: confluence
0: of a variety of different cultures, equally strong, mm-hmm. and 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 sort of is kind of kind of uh, brewed in the deep south <laughs> in that temperature. I'm amazed by it. I mean, it's, it's 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 like a whole country to itself.
1: But Georgia, where did you go to college in Georgia? So I I actually so I got a scholarship to go to Duke, and my mother insisted that I go check out the small. Baptist school in Georgia called Mercer University. It's in Macon, Georgia, home of the Allman Brothers and and Otis Redding. And I actually, the people at Duke were very much, I need them. They don't need me. And then the people at Mercer were welcome. We want you to be a part of the family. They wound up giving me a good scholarship. So I went to school there instead of Duke, which some days I regret. But then I met my wife at Mercer and, and have stayed and made it a home. And it's been, it's been great. I, I've now lived in Georgia more than I ever lived in Louisiana. What was your faith life at that point? Because
0: obviously going to a, a school like Mercer, you, you, you must've been at least openly, at least understand yourself in your self understanding was a Christian. Can you tell me a little bit about that part
1: of your life as a child and your, your parents? Well, you know, we couldn't go to church in Dubai. You could, but it was inconvenient. It was The the weekend was Friday and Saturday, right. so Sunday was school day. And if you wanted to go, you had to go at night and be discreet behind high walls. And, and we never really did. My parents would go. During the summers, of course, we would sit with my grandmother and always go to her Baptist church where my parents still go. But then I got to college and it was kind of free range college. It wasn't an essential component of my life. I would show up in church on occasion as best I could. But for all of the school being a technically Baptist college, it really wasn't. And I really, going to church during the school year was not something I did. I, I preferred to sleep in on Sunday. Uh, I was really only later in life with getting married and my wife's health struggles and all that kind of dragged us back into church. And at what point did you start
0: gravitating towards conservatism as a, as a political philosophy. Was this did this happen in, in, in college as it does with with lots of people? Was it a reaction to 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 w- what you found there or to your peers? Or or did it come
1: in retrospect from deeper roots in your in your view? I, you know, I think it came from deeper roots. I mean I, I was not a regular churchgoer but always religious. I can't I have friends who have these amazing conversion stories like Paul on the road to Damascus and me, I just can't remember of time where I, I didn't believe in God. My parents were Democrats, but trended Republican, and when we moved back from Dubai, became Republican. We were not a political household. We didn't talk politics, but just it was it was a conservative life. Being around the world, I remember. I think probably my formative early memories of politics actually were of all people, Gene Kirkpatrick at the nineteen eighty four. Republican convention, this Democrat who became Reagan's UN ambassador, talking about the blame America first crowd of the of the Democrats in San Francisco that year. And that's kind of one of my early memories of, of here I am an American abroad. Ronald Reagan has literally sent the Navy to keep my family safe. I guess I'm a conservative and my parents didn't argue with it. They were too, even as they technically were Democrats. And I just always kind of philosophically was an evangelical and a conservative and didn't necessarily knew what that meant, but over time began to read, was really pushed by my college professors to be sure what I believe. I I never had a college professor like so many apparently have these days that pushed me towards uh, being a progressive. I had college professors who were like, we don't care, just understand why you are what you are And, and read left, right and center and kind of philosophically was conservative Hmm.
0: you said something just a while back that struck me which is that to be not actually go to church but to have been religious you know insofar as you never didn't believe there was a god you you never didn't believe in god and you know i that's true true for me too although i think i had a much more emphatic Catholic upbringing. In other words, I was taken to church. I was, I was indoctrinated, as it were. But at some deeper level, it's either you, you know, if some people like me just can't not believe that there is something beyond us that is benign and that is, is omniscient and that is that cares about me. And I don't know how to get rid of that belief. There were a couple of moments in my life when I really questioned it. But even then, it wasn't that God didn't exist. It was the possibility that God was evil, that, that was the alternative version to me. I'd never really contemplated the absence of God. Do you remember when that first sort of how you felt that way as a child or even, even into college? Was there is there some way we can describe that to people
1: who don't have that? Yeah, I, um, I've had a series of moments in my life. Probably the most significant was my trip home when I was 11. It's first time flying by myself. I'm on a 747. The plane begins to fill up with smoke. Mm. There's some hydraulic failures. I am alone on this plane, save for I know my French teacher, who's several rows in front of me. We land in Austria without wheels on the plane, sliding down a runway, and I... It, it is the distinct first memory of some, I mean, Christians talk about the peace that transcends all understanding. I That was the first moment that I was like, "There's." it's kind of a wake-up call. And it's one of those things you can set aside over time and the memory fades over time. The description changes in your head, but then you have these moments in your life where there must be something else, a series of things in your life that providentially happen. Some people would say fortuitous or luck. And I just I there's there feels to be a strand that ties all of these moments in your life together. And I understand I know there are people who don't believe in God that don't feel God's presence in their life. But I can't really relate to that because I I've had all these moments in my life where I would, it would be easier for me not to believe in God, and yet uh, he keeps calling in ways that uh, make me clear that he's really there in some active presence in my life. I mean, as, as someone whose wife has stage four of an incurable form of lung cancer, it would be a lot easier to, to not have to wrestle with God in my life and just say, well, it's a random confluence of events in a world that doesn't matter, but yet I can't do that. Yeah. How is your wife doing? She's great. My wife's I love her and she scares me. She's she's slightly taller than me. She rides a Harley. She has tattoos and she's training for a strongman competition in October where she has to pull a UPS truck down the street. I'm I'm constantly in awe of her ability to push herself. So is she a stage four cancer careful. and she's doing this? Yes. Yes. So, and to explain for your listeners, so my wife, and again, it just, not to go off the beaten path No, 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 let's go off the beaten path for a little bit. (laughs) Vigential God moments. So in 2006, and I'll try not to cry, and I always seem to here, a week before Christmas in 2006, I had a one-year-old, and my wife, they discovered, had discovered some spots in her lungs before Labor Day that year, and they finally decided they needed to check them out, and literally, it is, I mean, we're on the verge of Christmas and my wife was given six months to live. They said she had a very rare form of cancer that had spread to her lungs, and that was it. So there was no cure. It had spread too far. And so I was going to be a, a widower at 31 with a, with a one-year-old. I had to be the one to tell my wife she was going to die. There was a pile up on the interstate. It was pouring down rain, and they told me I could be the one to tell her. So I literally... When my wife came out of the anesthesia from her lung biopsy was the one who looked in her eyes and said, unfortunately, there's nothing they can do. You've got six months to live. And we spent uh, 24 hours plotting out my life and my daughter's life before they came in and said, oops, our bad. We think it was a misdiagnosis, which it turned out to be. It was a, a very rare condition. The local hospital interpreted it pathology or pathology wise as cancer, They sent it to the Mayo Clinic and they said, no, we know what this is. Now, you fast forward 10 years later, I am being wheeled into a cardiac ICU unit given 24 hours to live. My wife is calling me on the phone, hangs up, calls again, hangs up, calls again. I finally am able to answer. She asks how I'm doing and I'm like, well, they've given me 24 hours to live, dear. And she falls apart and says, well, the Mayo Clinic has called and said, That they think I have this rare form of cancer that had I not been misdiagnosed 10 years before, we would have never known. And they caught It's the same cancer Rush Limbaugh had. It's genetic. Everybody said his was from smoking. His was genetic, too. There's no cure for it. Uh, But unlike him, uh, my wife, because of the misdiagnosis 10 years before, they caught it so incredibly early they could put her on a medicine that keeps the tumors from growing. It is stage four. It's in all four lobes of her lungs. The medicine works for two years. After that, you pretty much have a death sentence. And for her, the medicine has worked for seven nonstop years. And every three months we go to see if the sword of Damocles is going to fall or not. Wow. That's that's
0: that's a way of living that uh, unless you've experienced something like that is very hard to grapple with. But it's really living because you're living in a way that makes
1: you absolutely aware of mortality. You, you really are. And, and she was she was given two years. They said after two years, the medicine will stop and there's no cure. It will consume you. So she didn't think she would get to our child's graduation. And now our daughter will be a senior in high school this year. And we think Christy will make it to her graduation and possibly to our son's graduation in four years this She's one of the, the doctor said he so that the, and again, this is I look at this and I interpret it as a God thing. When the Mayo Clinic, mis, when it was misdiagnosed 10 years ago, the Mayo Clinic solved it. 10 years later, they came to her and said, we think you have this, which she does. And then they said, we'd love to be your doctors. But the man who discovered this cancer lives an hour from you and invented the medicine. And so that man is now her doctor. And she's one of 30 some people in the world he knows of with this specific type of cancer. And COVID killed most of those people. And so she's now been on this medicine longer than most others. And she's kind of now the test case of how long can it actually work for some people? Something that's supposed to work two years, seven years in is still working for her. And in a few months, she intends to pull a UPS truck down the street as a result. She kind of went through, I've got two years, I'm screwed to, well, I beat this thing. I might as well get in shape and buy a motorcycle and start weightlifting. What an extraordinary story. I, I'm, I have some feelings
0: of, of, of understanding of that. I mean, it was just so interesting. Like a, just a few days ago, June 23rd, was the 30th anniversary of my being told, finding out that I had HIV, which in 1993 was similarly a pretty bad diagnosis. <laughs> no one survived. But people lived different variations of lifespan. It depended when you got it, how your immune system was, all the rest of it. Random stuff, no medications yet, but they could come. So you're living, and a lot of us now who live in the 21st century get these kind of diagnoses, and they realize that they are provisional upon scientific development because the pace of change is quite extraordinary. But I too remember all the, all the other people with the same diagnosis dying around me and in front of me in, in, in two cases and young and you are forced you are forced to live differently for a while and of course once that then once the medications came in and my virus went to nothing and i'm now 30 years of this which is kind of amazing really i don't live that real a life but i do because humans we're like that we we like to be distracted from our reality we we can't face our mortality every day. It's a very hard thing to do. And yet I also felt freer, less constrained, more at peace in some ways in that period f- confronting my mortality, realizing that life is, 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 is not forever. And what matters is how you live now and what you're going to do every day. All well, that sounds cliched, but it's actually true. And it, it, did, it, it did reignite my faith. It did. It didn't destroy it. It ignited it, partly because you know, because I felt God's presence in that time. I really did. I think there are times in one's life when I feel as if God has come and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, shaken me around, and thrown me back in, and said, "Remember, remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return." And that's the way in which one can live. Anyway, I'm just a digression, but that's an extraordinary story, and. <laughs> i have yet to pull a ups truck up the street
1: but i'm not, yeah. clearly i'm not I, your I, wife is in a I, class of I'm, her own i, I kind of like being fat and eating but she's like <laughs> oh i gotta eat, eat i gotta eat more chicken and and i gotta get more protein i'm like ah oh. I, I finally she's like you know you're 48 you should give up the beer and pizza diet dear. I'm like i i guess but i like beer and pizza yeah <laughs> Sometimes beer and pizza are worth a lot. I I, I totally
0: with you. Anyway, we we digressed a little bit. But so tell me then, you're in your twenties, you've graduated, and you're moving forward in your career. What did you? What? what where did you end up, and why?
1: <laughs> so I I really believed, and I was working for a congressman, and he said, "So uh, how did you come law- to work for a congressman?" So I started the College Republicans at my alma mater, Mercer University, Uh, started, got involved in politics, decided I was going to go to law school because this congressman whose campaigns I kept working for, Saxby Chambliss, who became a senator, he said, a law degree is the MBA of politics. If you want to go to Washington, you should do that. I grew up in Dubai, and the only place I ever wanted to visit, I visited Hong Kong and Bangkok and London and Prague, and I always wanted to go to Washington. So on the far side of the world, we never went. And I finally, I went, paid my way. That was my college graduation gift to myself. And I just was in love with this beautiful city, despite all of its problems. I wanted to be in politics. And so I went to law school, got a degree, was going to go to Washington, D.C. But along the way, I met my wife. Our college roommates had been engaged to each other. My wife ultimately transferred to a different school. We lost touch. And then my third year in law school reconnected. We got married, and she's like, I don't want to move to Washington. I don't like a big city. It's like, well, I'll go to Atlanta. Like, I don't want to move to Atlanta. It's a big city. So we stayed in Macon, Georgia, population 98,000. We're two hours from her parents, and I practiced law like every other lawyer but was exceedingly miserable. Uh, and so I, I did election law. I ran political campaigns out of my law firm. I did corporate law, state planning. And was just a miserable lawyer. I I there was this thing called a client and I hated them. <laughs> and so I needed them to be a lawyer. And I, I tried to get out of it. And and blogging started. And you know, I, I don't know that he knows that I credit him for it, but back in the day, I would I would read National Review. They had their website. And every once in a while Jonah Goldberg would write an article and I would I would bang out an email and excessively, I I got a reply from this guy one time. And he's like, you know, there's this thing called a blog. You should check in the blog spot. And I started it largely because he recommended it. And at one point, uh, a lawyer in my law firm came in. He sat down and he closed the door. And he says, Eric, do you know what the definition of a dumbass is? I said, "I, I have no idea. He said, you, you hate being a lawyer. You love politics. You need to go find a job in politics. And About that time, Red State had started, and they put me in charge of it because they needed a free election lawyer, and I was, and I kind of took over it and built a career off of that and just started writing. I'll never forget, my wife was actually, she was a month from giving birth to our child in 2005, and I told her, I thought I was going to quit being a lawyer and become a blogger full-time. She literally went into fake labor. And we had to go to the hospital, and she was totally fine, (laughs) except she was ready to murder me. And I did. I I quit my law practice and started writing full-time at Red State, and one thing led to another. Uh, Until that fateful week of Christmas in 2006, we were out of money, had no buyers for the site. My wife was given six months to live, and like 48 hours later, my wife is suddenly fine, and and Eagle Publishing in Washington, D.C. made an offer for Red State. So I didn't have to find a new job since we'd run out of money. And I signed a deal with them and kept running red state. What was it like? I'm asking you a question. I know the
0: answer to, but our readers may not. Our listeners may not. And being a blogger back in the early days, you're, you're now blogging in 2007, 2008, 2009. What was
1: it like? You know, it was by the seat of your pants. It, it, we we dealt with a lot of what I think a lot of people deal with now—an an arrogance from the mainstream media that lacks the ability to, to self-reflect and have a little bit of humility that maybe they're not infallible. We got that a lot in the early days. I I, I started my own blog in two thousand four. Red State started August of two thousand four, so I I'm full time by two thousand six as a career and. It was, there was more notoriety for being a blogger at the time. It was something new and novel people paid attention to, particularly in politics. The, the guys who started Red State, I get the credit for it, but it really wasn't me. It was three friends of mine. And Daily Coast was on the left, this large group progressive blog. Red State was kind of started to be the, the right-wing version of it, and, and it worked for a time. And it was uh, very, it was like starting a business now for an entrepreneur. You're there's no safety net. People think you're insane because they don't know what it is. But you have this idea, and the monetization sucked. It was it was daring and risky, and yet, uh, and no one knew what you did. I, to this day, my parents have always thought I needed to keep my law license in case this talk radio thing doesn't work out. It was even worse then as a blogger that yeah, son, are you sure? My father-in-law was like, what, I gave my daughter to you, and this is what you're going to do. But it was fun. It was freeing. I could go anywhere, have my laptop. I could work and produce income for my family. And people paid attention to what I wrote more than I realized they paid attention.
0: Well, everything with me the same. I mean, it was an incredibly fun thing. Except I was actually even more of a traitor, because I actually quit the mainstream media to go be a blogger and then started critiquing the mainstream media on the blog while I was still in it. And eventually, of course, that ended up in tears. But nonetheless, it was huge fun at the time. The ability just to actually write something, not be forced to edit it by someone else, not have to suck up to some publisher, not have to go through a million processes, um, but to get it out there, to be accountable, and to feel the impact, because you really did in real time. You wrote something, you would suddenly get a mass of emails where you would notice that you were being read in some quite high places that you weren't really expecting. I mean, I didn't expect Barack Obama to be actually a subscriber to The Dish, but it turns out he was. And so it was, yeah, it was an incredible thrill ride. When did that begin to wear off?
1: Oh, you know, it, it. so... My issue became running Red State. It was a group site with a lot of personalities and it was beginning to tire on me when I was doing my annual conference. And then people would pick fights on the site and everyone had their own independent voice. But since I was the editor in chief, suddenly I was part of the fight. And, and why did I let someone do this? And people had no concept of what it was like to run a group blog of independent personalities. I wasn't editing their pieces. I didn't know they had published it. Those little fights began to wear on me. When I was at CNN, someone could write something controversial on red state and the blowback would come to me. And I just, I finally was like, you know, I I need to go do my own thing. I am to my knowledge, one of the few people I know who went the opposite way of you. I started in non-traditional blog media and wound up at CNN and Fox and talk radio, as opposed to being in the media and and going to blogs. And I, by the time I got to 2015, I had been at red state full-time for 10 years and I wanted to go do my own thing. Uh, I, I also was doing more and more radio and it became clear to me that talk radio would be my career. And I just needed to like, go be my own person and not, feel like I was leading a movement, not that I was picking a fight. I just, I had ideas and thoughts and I wanted to write them without feeling like I was at the vanguard of something or up on the ramparts fighting a fight every day. Right. And this was a time when conservatism,
0: American conservatism was trying to find its footing again. I mean, after the Bush-Cheney administration, you had, the end of it was this awful recession. You had a failed war. You had a whole bunch of stuff to recover from. And Mitt Romney didn't seem to be able to quite move that forward. He did, I think, nowadays, I think a lot of people would be thrilled to have Mitt Romney as a viable Republican presidential candidate. But he wasn't He wasn't really meeting with the demand. You were in touch with the regular Republicans. You were in touch by talk radio and also through, or you were then blogging, under your own name, is that correct? Am I getting
1: that right? So I, I started a, a, a site, and in, in, you know, this is after Romney. This is 2015. I started a site called The Resurgence oh, right. for a few years. Then finally just decided, you know what? It, it's, I'm growing my brand. I shouldn't be running something not tied to me. So I, I, I sold that and just started my Substack about the, that time and, and just put everything under my own name so I could own it myself. And where were you when
0: Trump first emerged? How, how, I mean, this will go back to a difficult moment because there you are, you are essentially a pretty mainstream conservative, as I understand it. And here was this, this, this fellow came along and like many of us, you were just at first just dumbstruck really and appalled. Tell me about that, that moment when you first, did you, did you think Trump was viable until he became viable? I mean, did you, did you worry about him in 2015, I mean, rather than 2014, were you did you think he was you, did you ever think he could
1: become the nominee no i I really didn't in fact, I had interviewed him when his book came out in two thousand and eleven Red State was owned by Eagle Publishing, which also had Regnery Publishing, which published his book and they sent me to New York and had a great time with him. It was kind of funny in hindsight, but we had this great conversation, very charismatic. He did this live stream interview with him to promote his book and then he would call the house and he would send notes. Did I want to come, to come to Florida and play golf and stuff? And my wife was like, this man's trying to own your souls. You, you're not allowed to. And I, I totally, like, I, I admit I'm somewhat of a naive person when it comes to stuff like this. And I was like, oh, he's just being nice. He wants me to go play golf. And my wife was like, absolutely not. Uh, so I never took him up on those invites. And then 2014, 2015 rolls around. And I wrote a piece about why Trump mattered. And uh, the piece was essentially this guy's not going to be the nominee, but he's giving voice to a lot of people who have felt alienated by the broken promises of the GOP. And, And I did not think that the establishment appreciated how so often, like Lucy with the football, they would put it down expect the voters to kick the ball and yank it away from them. What were the key last...
0: issues in which that was the case? I guess there's the size of government, which kept going up. Size
1: of abortion. government. Uh, abortion. It went all the way back for me, though, to the Harriet Myers pick with uh. George W. Bush, which that was actually, I think, what put me and Red State on the map is I was one of the first people to come out and say this woman is, gave to Al Gore in the Al, it, when he was running for president in 1988 against George H. W. Bush. He was in the Democratic primary. Why is this the pick? And then it was the immigration fight, which I'm not the hardcore uh, anti-immigration, throw them out, uh, get rid of birthright citizenship, but I am. We should protect our borders. A- and those fights with Bush, I actually thought he picked a great fight with Social Security that he then bailed on. And, but then you had the size of government. You had uh, the pro-life issues within the Republican Party, Then there was Obamacare, and if you give us this, we'll repeal it. Well, actually, now we need the Senate. Well, actually, now we need the White House. There was this constant effort on the GOP to whatever the Chamber of Commerce said you should do, the GOP did, regardless of what the base wanted. And I I kept highlighting these issues that there's a difference between Main Street and Wall Street. There's a difference between small business and big business. And the Republicans say they're for the little guy, but they help the big guy. Uh, They left a lot of people behind. I'm a free trader, but I knew a lot of people felt betrayed and left behind, and they weren't making it right with these people. And so I said, this guy matters because there's a contingent of the party that wants to burn it all down. They're a minority. They're not going to be successful, but he's going to give them voice. And boy, was I wrong in that regard. He brought a lot of people into the GOP, and they did burn it down.
0: Yeah. and your but let me just ask you first of all because I, I I'm fascinated. What is Trump like as a person? Now you met him; he was obviously trying to charm you, so it's maybe a little false. But what's he like to just
1: engage with as a human being? So I have had several people tell me that if you ever meet Bill Clinton, Trump is the Republican Bill Clinton. That the moment you're in front of him talking to him, you are the center of the universe. Everything is about you. He stares you in the eye. He makes you feel listened to and respected, even if he's not really paying attention. He, it is remarkable charisma that he actually has one-on-one with people. He he pays attention to you. He tries to network with you. He tries to find connections with you. I I, I really am. I marvel at his sense of charisma. It's... I've met politicians who are like that before. He's one of the best in that regard. Uh, but I never saw that he could translate that from one-on-one to uh, a mass scale. But his his rallies were the same way, and people loved it. He's a deeply funny person to meet in person. He jokes about everything. He laughs about everything. And you just come away thinking, man, this guy's a barrel of fun to be with. Hold on. I've never seen him laugh. You've never seen
0: him no. laugh? Wow. Yeah, sometimes at his own jokes, but he never laughs at someone else's joke. Not that I've uh, seen
1: what, what he does. Oh, really? uh, you, you do a story and
0: he'll laugh. Yes. Well, that's um, that's yeah. encouraging. <laughs> I was extremely nervous about a man who rarely laughed. And you're telling yes. me he does all the time.
1: Yeah, he, he does. I, I thought he had a tremendous sense of humor and, and he laughed. Well, what I thought was actually very remarkable, is I remember in 2011, going into Trump Tower to interview him and he was downstairs with the cleaning staff and was yucking it up with the cleaning staff in, in Trump Tower. And I just thought, well, that's that's a very personable guy to be on the floor. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. I've got this meeting with him upstairs and he's downstairs with the cleaning crew laughing. Um, he had the, a that pretty that good happened.
0: relationship with contractors, with 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 people who were in the construction industry because he was obviously building these things. But they, he didn't have to, but he kind of got along with them. There was a friend of mine that came up with this, that it, everything makes sense uh, of Donald Trump, if you precede it with the phrase Donnie from Queens," you're now on the air. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. But nonetheless, the demagoguery was something different. I mean, i've right. I've watched a lot of speeches, and I, I've observed a lot of politicians. I've never come across a figure. Whose demagogic instincts were so strong. I mean, and what i well, that I mean, not he wasn't great at making, I mean, Obama could make an amazing speech. He could bring you to tea. I mean, maybe not you, but you could see the effect he had as an orator. But it wasn't demagoguery. There's a difference. And Trump loved that. And he loved picking on various groups and people. And he loved, tell me what, what made you say, in 2015, 2016, no, not this guy. You just described him as a personable person who charmed you, seduced you, invited you, was funny. So then you said, no, not for the presidency. And tell me, and I've read what you wrote about that, but, but in your own words, what, what was it about him that you, you felt was just unacceptable?
1: That it, one, a lack of trust in, in what does this man actually believe? Is he telling me things he wants me to hear? Or does he really believe the stuff he's saying? I, I mean, if you looked at his record in 2015, he had mostly been a Democrat and a Democratic donor and had supported abortion rights and had this, this, this pivot to become the GOP nominee. But there was also the, the a couple of things, the sense of in, lack of integrity and the sense that he really brought out in other people the worst in them. And I just I, I had these encounters with people who they loved Trump and in loving Trump, they they tended to lose their sense of civility. And it just all of these red flags started popping up. The Megan Kelly situation. So in 2015 I was doing my annual conference, the gathering, and I invited all the Republican presidential candidates, including him. But he had that moment with Megan Kelly and suggested she must be on her period. That's why she was asking questions. I was a Fox News uh, political contributor at the time. And I, I felt like, one, you're, you're going after my employer's talent. And also, it's deeply uncivil thing to say. And also, if you come, you're going to be a distraction to all the other candidates. So I uninvited him. And that was also my, my wake-up call with Fox, I guess, is uh, half the people at Fox turned on me for uninviting him from this event, where really... It was because I didn't want him to be a distraction to the other candidates who were coming, and it wound up being coming the big distraction. And months later, I wrote something nice about him. He had done something I can't remember what it was, but just complimented him. And I get this faxed printout of what I had written, a PDF with his handwriting on it. So glad we're back on the same page. And just thought this is this isn't this isn't like sincere. It, this is all performance art. And as much as politics is performance art, I, I want someone with principles and integrity and, and values, and someone who's not playing me. And I, I didn't think I was getting that with Trump. And presumably, as a
0: Christian, there were there aspects of his personality, and his personal life, his his his, yes. his his treachery, his his treatment of women, his his, his, his indifference
1: to the truth. <laughs> Let's put it mildly. That was one of the the lines that I wrote. Is you can't tell me that I can trust a man who betrayed multiple wives. How, how is he not going to cheat on me when he was so cavalier cheating on his wives? And I, to this day, I stand by that. I said, by the way, the same thing about Newt Gingrich when he ran for president, that you can't... I mean, if, if we got integrity, you, you swear to God that you're going to uphold and honor this marriage before God and, and now you're on wife number three? I, I got a problem with that. Yeah, was there anything... And, and also, presumably, you, you, you didn't trust him on abortion. No, I I didn't, given his record. And even on the campaign trail, he would would say nice things about the good that Planned Parenthood does in the world. Just everything to me was just there were red flags going off that he's not he's not a person that we should want in the White House. And a lot of friends disagree, had people show up at my house to threaten us. And it was a very wild ride during 2016. Yeah. Tell me about that. I um, mean, you you actually, had. I mean, not if you don't
0: want to go into it again. It's, no, no, no. it's horrible, I know. But I, I, nonetheless, I, you I, were subjected to real political terror in a way. And your wife was, and your family and your wife was as well. An early I, indicator that things were going off the rails in American politics.
1: And this is a, 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 a God bless my wife and kids who at the time, uh, my, my my children are now 17 and 14. So you can do the math on how old they were then. My son was in headed into th- or in third grade. I guess my, my daughter was in sixth grade and they didn't, it was actually probably a year or so later that they. no, I, I can tell you it was 2020 when I really found out just how bad it was with them. They, they wanted to protect me because they, they believed in what I was doing, but just all the stories that have come out over time from my wife and kids that at the time I was completely clueless about it. I I knew some, but not all. So my wife, I'm given well, as all bad stories start, I joined CrossFit and, <laughs> and I I was just completely out of shape and couldn't keep my breath. And then it would, must be allergies, and then it was sinuses. And and I finally I'm I literally I'm wheeled into a cardiac ICU unit and my whole family is called. They think I'm going to die in the night. I, my lungs had been filling up with blood clots, and I had no idea. Same day, my wife is told she has this incurable form of cancer. And, but I thought it was the stress of the election. I, I get out of the hospital. My wife has been diagnosed with cancer. We have three men show up at our house, knock on the door. One of them I knew. I didn't know the others. And they wanted me to know. They were. I had written by then that there's no way I can support this guy. I had been on TV, and someone says, well, if you were forced to choose between Hillary and Trump, who would you pick? I said, the bullet. And I just I wasn't going to vote for either one of them. So these three guys show up at the porch and threaten me. They they want me to know they know my wife has this cancer and I need my my health insurance for her and for me. And I need to think about my family. If I don't support Trump, they will make it their business to put me out of a job in talk radio. I'll be unemployed and and not be able to take care of my family. Uh, We wound up having security at our house for months on end armed guards. My son was beat up on the playground by a kid whose parents had told him that I was destroying the country. My daughter was given explicit guides on how to commit suicide, that if my kid killed herself, then perhaps I would rethink my life choices and realize what I was doing for the country. Mm. That story I didn't know until much later. My wife announced to her Bible study class that she has an incurable form of cancer. And a woman came up to her and said that she would pray for my wife but wanted to punch me. Uh, for a time, we had to stop going to church because people would either be very passive aggressive or they would loudly mutter past us. My kids were chased through a store one day by a man telling them that I, their father was destroying the country. And it, we just had these series of events. Both of my children lost all of their friends because their friends' parents thought I was on the verge of destroying the country and would talk about it so openly in front of their kids. The kids hated my kids. They were bullied, I mean, beat up, encouraged to commit suicide, all of these things. And by the way, my kids at the time were in our church's school. I should point that out. And the the headmaster and, and the principal really didn't do anything because it, it just it was this wild ride. Well,
0: uh, here's, here's, here's a question. What happened to American Christianity in this period? Because this is not a Christian. No, it's, it's you you, are, you you may disagree with someone. Hi there. In the image of God. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Sobstack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. and You also get with that The entire weekly dish every Friday, not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com, subscribe, and get the whole thing. Join the debate Join the fun, subscribe.